Hello everyone, this is Justin On from Between the Headlines, bringing you the stories that are shaping society. Today, I'll be discussing North Korea, the Stalinist police state known for its human rights abuses, nuclear weapons, and erratic leader. In particular, we'll take a look inside North Korean society. How do people relate to the state and its structures of control in such a peculiar country? For this, I talked to Ben Silberstein, who just received his PhD from the University of Pennsylvania studying this exact topic. The North Korean states and you, you, know, you could argue that the space in, in, in socialist ideology, uh, they very much look at the social political reliability of a person uh, sort of through how they were brought up, from what family background they came. Um, so they believe that any sort of association with someone who might have opposed the government in, in the communist government in the late 1940s or during the Korean War, or the relative and family member of someone who has defected to South Korea, for example, that that might say something about the person themselves. So this is the basic rationale for why the North Korean government constructed the system known as the Songun system, which is, it, it essentially divides every North Korean, except for the very, very top, you know, top level elites, Kim, Kim family, uh, it divides them into categories of political reliability. So you have a class at the bottom that is inherently suspicious from the government's point of view. And, and this contains people whose relatives committed uh, were cooperated with the Americans or the South Koreans during the Korean War, or um, people who are people who either came themselves or the, the children of people who came from Japan in the in the 1960s and 70s primarily uh, and, and immigrated to North Korea. So these people are seen as an inherently suspicious class of people and they face much harsher, not much harsher, but quite a lot harsher surveillance and, and sort of monitoring by the government than, than other people do. And then in the middle you have people who are neither one or the other, sort of, who aren't especially reliable or, or, or unreliable. And then at the top, to put it very, very uh, simply, you have um, people whose ancestors were part of the North Korean Revolution, uh, people whose ancestors might have been part of Kim Il-sung's guerrilla, uh, guerrilla group, the guerrilla army that fought the Japanese in, in Manchuria in the 1940s and 30s, or... Um, families of war heroes and things like that. I mean, aside from the fact that this is a way that, that, the, that the regime sort of constructs a ladder of how much they trust someone, it's also, it's also an incentive structure. It's also, you know, you, you, everyone knows that if you commit any sort of crime, uh, of especially a political nature, not only is it dangerous for yourself, but it can also really ruin your family's standing in North Korea, in society, so it's a it just adds a huge layer of risk to to every action that might uh, be regarded as regarded negatively by the state. Um, so it's it's very much it's a very important. The reason that I, I ended up focusing so much on my dissertation on this is simply that when I interview people from North Korea, so many people just told me 
in various ways that this really determines, you know, if you want to understand the social structure of North Korea, this is where you have to begin. Um, this is what determines everything. And people even use it as sort of talk about it very casually in, in my experience. It's sort of, well, I, I was, I was a, you know, bad person in North Korea. And then I ask, well, what do you mean by bad person? And it's almost like, it's, it's a strange question to a North Korean because it's so obvious. It's like, well, my, my, my grandparents were landowners. So I was, you know, labeled as a class enemy. And it is just, it's, 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 a, it's a crucial central foundation for the way that North Korean society works. You mentioned um, surveillance as one of the effects or consequences of having bad Songbun. Where else in your daily life might that happen? What other effects might there be? Basically, every at every juncture where you can advance socially, you'll, you're you're going to face some sort of scrutiny relating to your songbun. Um, so, so I mean, I interview people who uh, one person who was admitted to a very prestigious theater college, or, or where he was going to do uh, like study script writing, uh, and this college was in Pyongyang. It was is uh, very highly regarded, but then after he had already been admitted. Um, the I suppose the sort of party committee of the university did a more thorough look into his background and found some some connections to you know like a, a grandfather who who owns some land uh, prior to to the foundation of North Korea and and so he he wasn't allowed to continue his, his studies and I heard a similar story about someone who was admitted to like the the party like the workers party college for training a party cadres. Which is a very good good um, route to social advancement in North Korea. And it was the same thing. She was first admitted, and only then was her songbun vetted thoroughly enough. Uh, and then, when it was discovered that she had um, some problematic family background, then then she was kicked out. And and that's you know these are only two stories out of many that I heard, and and doubt. And I, I have no doubt that there are hundreds of thousands, if even perhaps millions of stories like this in North Korea, people sort of facing this opportunity for social advancement, whether it be membership in the Workers' Party or uh, admission to, to university or college. Then at, at all these junctures, your family background is a very important part of the overall package that they sort of, the overall uh, evaluation that the government will do a person. So, so it can really, it can really ruin lives. Um, of course, it can also make lives a lot better than they otherwise would have. Like, there's definitely an aspect of upward social mobility for people who happen to be born into the right families, but um, but that's certainly not the case for everyone. From what you're describing, Hongbun definitely seems like a caste system to which there's almost no parallel. But obviously, barriers to social mobility exist in different gradients in almost every society. So how much, so how much of an outlier is this? Barriers to social mobility, as you noted, exist everywhere. They exist in, you know, in South Korea, the United States, uh, Sweden, my own country, and and you know everywhere. And and in, in communist countries, it's also been very common historically to to that that your family background comes into play for your social political advancement. It's very common being labeled as the son of a or daughter of a. Of a landlord or capitalists in, in the Soviet Union, especially in the 20s and 30s, was very, very problematic. The difference with North Korea is that they, they have an entire bureaucracy set up 
to deal with with people's family background with, with investigating this. And there is a very formalized system that describes sort of um, exactly how people should be classified into what category and so on and so forth. It's not just that you know you someone might have a I don't know bad reputation because they their 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 father or grandfather was uh, aligned with the wrong side during the civil war in Russia. Um, there there it's it's really part of public administration in North Korea, and that is what I think makes it an outlier. The 1990s famine was a turning point in North Korean history. It was an economic crisis on a devastating scale where millions died of hunger. But it also had profound effects on the socioeconomic landscape. It taught people that they had to fend for themselves. There was a renewed pursuit of money for the sake of survival. Corruption and bribery flourished during this period and stuck around. Then, more recently, an underground market has developed in North Korea. Capitalism and the free market hidden under the guise of a communist government. This is the secret network of market. This is the network of grassroots markets called the Changmadang. A younger generation of North Koreans has grown up with the Changmadang economy. At the same time, upper classes have amassed wealth by trading internationally and exporting North Korea's cheap labor. Nowadays, there is a new business class, those who have become elites, not through party loyalty, but through the markets. Could any of these economic turns have chipped away at Songbun? How much of a barrier to social mobility is it? How this impacts Songbun is, is to, to me, it's still a little bit unclear, because on the one hand, there are other avenues to succeed, quote unquote, in North Korea today that don't involve climbing through the party bureaucracy. You don't have to be a party member to to, to succeed in North Korea. You don't have to have a, a prestigious uh, position as a as some sort of government administrator. Um, but it really helps if if you have connections to the government. That's still a huge advantage because it makes it easier for you to engage in, in market trade. It makes it easier to get permits. It makes it easier to work with government with state-owned firms to, to essentially run a private operation, which which is what a lot of North Korean business people do. Um, it also gives you access to power in a different way. You know, have other connections that will might make it easier for you to, to, to bribe the right person to be able to import or export whatever you want. So so it, it still matters, but I think we're going to need to to look back at this later and sort of ask uh, really how how did things change with the rise of the markets when it comes to to the uh, social structures of North Korea? Because we're still we're very much in the middle of a um, of change as uh, already. Let's jump back to your introduction at the very start. Um, you said that your research largely focuses on changes over time. So this is a question that um, I was thinking of in relation to Songbun, but it can also go with the themes of surveillance, if that's something you want to comment on as well. How have these things changed over time, either sort of as it happens or intentional changes created by the government? There, there is behavior in North Korea today that people that everyone sort of engages in, like private trade and, and things like that, that would have been regarded much, much more 
as a much more problematic phenomenon in, let's say, 20 or 30 years ago than, than today, simply because it wasn't as common. I remember reading a, a testimony by a, uh, an immigrant from Japan to North Korea, who came to North Korea in the 1960s and said that, well, they, they would buy, they would go to these, form, these stores where they could use Japanese yen and buy high-quality cloth. And people, the people in the store would sort of look at them with, with uh, they would look down on them because they knew they were going to do, to make clothes out of this material and sell it for, for profit. And that was just regarded as, you know, it's capitalist behavior. It's something that you shouldn't be, be engaging in if you're a good North Korean citizen. Today, I don't think that that stigma exists, uh, if, you know, maybe not at all, because Market trade and sort of private initiative is such an important driver for for how the North Korean economy and you know, all North Korea's North Korean society works right now. But another thing that's changed, and and this is something I think will be, become more and more important over time, is that people are allowed to use you know government condoned cell phones and and uh, the North Korean version of, of iPads and things like that. Um, but I, I I don't think that I don't think what we're seeing is a, a sort of move toward greater freedom necessarily. I think that the, the state is very well aware of what it's doing when it comes to to allowing people to use things like cell phones um, because they also function as little machines for for surveillance themselves. The, the phones register everything that the user does, and the state can whenever the, the, the Ministry of uh, State Security wants, they can just make a person turn in their phone and, and have it scrutinized by the state. So I think, um, I think that, that, that right now the system is going more towards what something that might look like greater freedom, but that might also really benefit uh, the government's control over society. Okay, I think that is probably a good note to transition into some of our questions regarding surveillance. So technology is, as you brought up, probably one of the main ways in which that takes place. But North Korea obviously isn't, or at least the populace isn't a technology heavy country. So in what ways is surveillance carried out? So this is a, this is a very, very good point that you bring up. And I, I, I really want to to highlight how this it's a, it's a very important question because technology i north korea is still it's a very poor country it's important to remember that um the government doesn't have i think if the government had access to the same resources that the chinese state does for example they might use technology to modern technology much more for surveillance than they do but in, in practice it's very hard to do um like little microphones to plan in people's homes are very expensive and things like that so um the most important part of any surveillance system historically and i say before i'd say china right now it might, might change how we look at these things but definitely before the fall of the soviet union the most important uh, mechanism was always people themselves you need to, to a successful in a successful surveillance system the state doesn't really need to intervene because people have such strong self-discipline because they know that if you know you never know who's listening in on your conversation you never know if the person you're talking to is someone you can trust or if they will will write you out to the government if you make uh, any problematic remarks so that's really the gist of it um there, there are multiple levels of um informants 
in North Korean society, informants to the government. So you can pretty much assume that, that most, if not all, teachers, university professors, um, and party secretaries at workplaces and, and so on and so forth, they routinely update the, the, the government about sort of the political reliability of their students or their, their employees and, and people around them. Um, and then there are other people in turn who are in charge of evaluating those people. So, so that's, that's really um, how the, the, the most important part of, of, of the surveillance system is, uh, you know, people in every neighborhood that are tied in with the government and report regularly on, on, on what's going on or if they've see, seen or heard any, anything problematic from the government's point of view. And, and another thing is, um, because everything is owned and controlled by the state, being in the good graces of the government is really important because there's just no alternative. And this, like you mentioned, you know, the rise of the markets and things like that, it, it might be changing, but um, I still think that it is so uh, valuable to have good, good connections and with, with, this, with, uh, with the state and sort of have your personal record be a good one, that uh, it is probably something that people still care a lot about in North Korea. So, so it really is the, the, the most important part isn't you know, cameras in the street or microphones in people's homes, but it's really the, uh, the consciousness of everyone, the sort of built-in feeling that if I, that there are certain things you shouldn't talk about, there are certain things you shouldn't say, even if, you know, even if no police officer is around, it's just self-censorship is, is the most important mechanism of the system. You mentioned the role of informants reporting on other people as, I guess, one of the more concrete steps um, that the surveillance community can take. In that case, what kind of things can get you reported on? And if you get reported on, what happens? It really depends. There, there's a pretty wide variety of um, things that can get you reported on. I mean, what, I, I can. I'm just going to bring up some examples from my 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 interviews with refugees from North Korea. Uh, one person told me that he had a friend who disappeared after he'd been talking about this friend had studied in, in Poland in the 1980s and was talking to to some other friends about the size of the highways in Poland that that, that, that were like could be like five lanes and like in this country we have you know max two lanes on highways because there just aren't any cars and that was interpreted as a uh, you know an ideologically problematic comment to make and somebody reported him to to the uh, uh, surveillance authorities and and he simply disappeared and you never really know what happens with people when they disappear most are probably placed in um, internment camps for political prisoners. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's any, any, sort, any sort of comment that can be interpreted as critical towards the state. The bar is set very, very low in North Korea. And even refugees that I interviewed in South Korea would say that it was almost physically difficult for them to say, you know, to, to offend the leader personally in speech because in North Korea, it was just such a, it's, it's just something you didn't do. And so that kind of, those, those guards that you build, build into your own mindset, they, they can stay with you. Um, but yeah, I mean, not, not everyone gets, who, who's reported gets deported to a concentration camp, but it's, um, you can also, you know, you can get demoted at work. Internal deportation is also very common. It's a sort of lighter 
slightly lighter punishment is to be deported from an urban center if you live in an urban center to the more inhospitable northeastern countryside. And, and it's because only people who are considered fully reliable um, are, are um, supposed to be allowed to live in, in sort of in the cities where the quality of life is higher. If you're the North Korean regime, why is this level of surveillance and like rigid degree of control over where people live so important? Because that example you gave about, you know, the friend talking about Poland, that seems perfectly innocuous. Yeah, well, you have to remember that North Korea still exists while a lot of other, you know, the East Germany does not exist, the Soviet Union does not exist. North Korea is, I think, in a global historical perspective, it's been surprisingly stable. Um, people have predicted the, the fall of the North Korean state for a long time, and they've been wrong every time. And I should say a lot of those predictions were made for very good reasons. I would have, if I was doing research back then, I, I, I might have taken the same view. So in a way, uh, this actually works. You know, you have, you, you just don't have mass political protests in North Korea. And I believe that one of the reasons is that this level of surveillance, it might, it might seem like they imprison things for com people from completely innocuous remarks, but at the same time, when you look at where North Korea is today, a relatively stable government, despite all it's been through and despite the global changes, there's something about the system that actually seems to be working in the regime's favor. And I don't think it's impossible that, they, that the, the social climate might come a little lighter over the coming maybe 10, 15 years. Uh, but at the same time, I think that the government, and perhaps for good reason, really sees full uh, vigilance against any type of, of snide remarks about the government as, um, as very problematic. They don't want to let a climate take hold where you can, where it's okay to have critical views of the government and express them to others. It's just not, um, yeah, this, this sort of climate of fear really, in a lot of ways, works very well in the, in the regime's favor. I mean, that's why, they, why, that's why they keep this sort of system up. For the people living in North Korea, are they aware then that they're living in fear and that what they're doing is self-censoring? How do they view Songbun or surveillance or just the place they're in? Um, I think that a lot of people simply don't think so much about it. I mean, I don't want to. I, I don't think. I, I don't want to downplay the level of suffering and, and fear in North Korea. It definitely is a very difficult place to live. But I think that for most of us. We just don't reflect over things that seem natural in a way. You know, if you've grown up with, with this kind of system, you just kind of, it's, it's hard to step out of it and say, okay, this is, this is oppression. No, this is just, it might be oppression, but it's still, it's still just life. So I think a lot of people see it as natural, but I also, especially with Songwon, I think there's a lot of bitterness. Um, this society that the Songwon system creates where people can climb through the social ladder for, even if they 
mess up, but they manage to bribe the right people and, and um, or just get promoted for, for no reason other than their seller family background. Like that's, that, that really, I think that really sings. Even, even if people are used to seeing this, I think it's really hard to cope with that and to, to, to know that, that your efforts don't necessarily, they matter, but only to a certain extent. It's always like a glass ceiling that you can't really cross through if your song isn't the right one. And I do think that a lot of people see that as very, very unfair. Okay, that's kind of the end um, of my questions. Are there any areas of your research that you'd like to share that we haven't gotten to yet? Yeah, I think I think one thing that's that's uh, worth talking about a little bit maybe is um, what's happening right now under Kim Jong Un because the government is, is seems to have launched since a few years ago a pretty well-coordinated campaign against what it calls capitalist influences, which uh, can include anything from South Korean dramas to, to uh, uh, people engaging in, in private market trade. Um, and so I think that there is a sense from the state's side of wanting to take back control. There may be people among the leadership in Pyongyang that are uh, very troubled by how far things seem to have gone in terms of, of uh, influences from abroad, people secretly listening to, to you know, South Korean pop music, watching South Korean dramas, things like that. Um, and I think that there, there, there may be people who really want to stamp this out once and for all. So I think what we're going to see is probably a, an increase, increasingly rigid campaign to um, monitor uh, monitor people and, and try to, to, to stamp out um, the sort of illegal behavior that's been tolerated for a long time tacitly by the state. Uh, I don't think it will succeed in the end, but uh, because it's just so widespread right now, you know, every, the, the state security officers are probably watching South Korean dramas themselves. Like it's, it's, uh, it's just, this kind of social change has gone quite far and I think it'd be very hard to root out, but I do think that the Kim Jong-un regime is trying to do it and and that'll obviously have uh, some potentially severe repercussions for for a lot of civilian north koreans okay i have one last question do you have any thoughts or messages that you'd want to share with our audience yeah thank you for giving me, me that opportunity because I, I i would like to say that two seemingly um, mutually exclusive things are true at the same time. On the one hand, the North Korean system is extremely oppressive and extremely rigid and very, very harsh. Um, it is a difficult place to live in many ways um, and constantly being monitored by your neighbors creates a lot of stress and it, it, makes, for a, uh, it, it makes for a lot of human suffering. At the same time, North Koreans are human beings, they're people just like us, who worry about, uh, you know, they, they, they worry a lot more than the average person in, in sort of countries like South Korea or the United States about where they're, they're, uh, about their ability to feed themselves and their families and, you know, basic things like that. But at the same time, I think it's important to remember that not everyone in a totalitarian society necessarily think so much about the system that they live in or, or about politics or things like that. Most people just live their lives. And I think that's true for people all over the world. So, so that's, that's um, sort of, I think we have to remember that at the same time as things are very difficult, 
for average North Koreans, they also they're also people. They're not just say a you know blob of individuals marching on on Kim Il Sung Square to the um, to the tune of, of uh, songs praising the leader. So so it's 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 a complex and complicated society like every society on earth. Um, I, I I just say I, I always want to be cautious when I say this because it can sound you know some some it can sound like a defense of the North Korean regime almost, which it certainly isn't. It's just a reminder that sort of North Koreans are, are people and they're individuals with feelings and, and thoughts just like we have. So that's that's something I'd like to put out there. Okay, um, that wraps up our interview. Thank you so much for joining me today. That was amazing. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.